what could I do on my team? Let's say I'm a leader. Leaders listen to this. Engineering leaders all the time, right? They want they're con- everyone's growing, right? People are growing. Mm-hmm. They're bringing on new people to their team. What's what's something that they can do? Like something really small and easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to give them too much homework, right? <laughs> just something small, easy. Maybe it's just a perspective that they can care, walk around with. Um, one way to create the sense of belonging on their team. I have one for you. Um, have you as a manager ever sat down with your direct reports and, and asked what, what does success mean to you? Have you defined success? Do we share a definition of success? Do we maybe like different things sometimes are in our definitions of success? So we've actually seen in research in software engineering research with real teams, um, Margaret Ann Story, who's a researcher who's worked with Microsoft has found this. Um, that managers and individual contributors on software teams often have very different definitions of success. And something that's interesting is that they also don't talk about it very much. So I was at a conference um, last fall with one of my researchers, and uh, she sat down at a table and was you know, introducing herself to a manager who happened to be there with his individual contributor. And, um, and they said, you know, what are you doing here at an engineering conference? You're a psychologist, you know? <laughs> and she said, Hey, you know, we do this research on like, how do people think about success? And, 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 you know, how do they think about staying motivated? And the manager in the IC like turned and looked at each other at the table and we're like, how do you think about success? Have we ever <laughs> talked about this? So she got to sit there and listen to them have this like whole beautiful conversation. And so that's like, such a tiny but important thing you can do. 100%. So I'm a founder at at this company. I was engineer. I was a Mm co-founder, but this is the first time the past six, seven years that uh, I was the CEO and I didn't have a Mm. co-founder. So I got to learn that the whole sales side of things, I got to manage people who weren't engineers. And and that was a big learning experience for me. And luckily I kind of fell backwards into some, some of that, what you were talking about, because early on, when I first started running engineering teams, you had to come up, we had this conversation was, it's done. Well, mm. is it? What do you mean? <laughs> Did you finish writing it? It's in development? Is it as it past staging? Is it in production? Are there people being able to use it? And so we ended up having to come up with this definition of done, right? Mm. So that when, whenever we say the word done, like, yeah, that's done. And there's six people on the team or seven people on the team or involved in the project everyone has a different version of done in their head. And so we had to figure that out. And I, I did carry that over through, because we're a fully remote company. So we lean harder on our KPIs for knowing that stuff is happening. Something that was fun to watch the bigger companies figure out in the pandemic. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but we were able to do that. Defining success on your team is the thing that a manager could do with their direct reports, individual contributors that would help them give a slight bit of advantage. Absolutely. I think that that's a beautiful start to the conversation because, you know, one of the things that I think about as a leader who works in data, as someone who's always worked on how we use evidence in organizations, I think about things like, where do we already have the answers inside of our organization, like from our people maybe, right? And we hear in our research with software teams, so much stress and tension and responsibility from engineering managers. So that was another piece that came out of this project we did on developer thriving was a lot of managers feel like, you know, they're responsible for everything and having all the information and they just don't have it. Like your one human brain is not 
big enough to have it. So a lot of the recommendations that we put out in our research have to do with where can you actually find that information and see yourself as an, if, if you're a manager, right? See yourself as someone who translates information and elevates it and amplifies the voice of your developers rather than feeling like that pressure to generate all of the answers yourself, right? What was the popular one that came up maybe about six, seven years ago with the, they felt like they were, oh, imposter syndrome. Yeah, imposter imposter syndrome. syndrome. (laughs) So when I heard that, I was like, what is, like, why would you feel like you're an imposter? Because I Googled, Mm. I'm a nerd, so I look up the definition (laughs) in the dictionary and I'm like, I don't understand this. After enough conversations, I figured from my understanding of it, and you can correct me because you're the, you're the expert, but I just was like, that's self-doubt. I was mm. like, if, if the way people are using the word, it means that they're doubting themselves. And that's been around since the beginning of time. So it was just the kids these days, I think, <laughs> coming up with imposter syndrome. No, I understand. I, I sometimes, you know, on our team, we joke about like the buzzwords of the day, right? Or the, you know, the hot topic word of the day. And, and um, I, I, but I always try to pay attention to like, you know, if something really resonates with a lot of people, there must be something going on. Like there people are trying to express something about their experience. Um, I'm with you. There's some great, there's been a great, there was a great HBR article, I think about, you know, we should stop telling people that they have imposter syndrome when actually their environment is just being terrible to them, right? Like everyone would doubt themselves if you're in a place that's treating you badly. So that to me is the current version of this conversation about imposter syndrome is have we actually just come up with this word because it lets us avoid talking about whether our workplaces are really good for us. And I have some, a lot of empathy with that. Cause I, I see a lot of people when you start to talk to them about their work, you know, they might say, well, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure if I'm good enough. I'm, I'm not a 10 X engineer, all those things. And then the key question to ask, again, tip for managers, key question to ask when you hear that stuff might be, so can you tell me why you think that? Where did that come from? Can you give me an example, right, of a time that you decided this is true about me? And you'll often hear somebody will tell you, you know, well, I did my best to write this piece of code and then I had a really toxic code review and it was terrible and I just decided this whole language isn't for me, right? You hear about these important turning points for people. And then again, intervention thinking, you can intervene on it. You can say, okay, well, let's like change the belief, you know, because I think that maybe that was wrong, that feedback you got. Like I like to listen to all the billionaires and read their life stories and understand how they think uh, for my, that's part of my education in my business world. And one of the things that I I saw a couple times was, I think it was Bezos and maybe Musk or a couple of them, they said something to uh, like along the lines of this, the most important decisions that I've ever made were not with data. They were with my gut. And then, so I put a little asterisk, I put a little pin in that because what I think they mean is I reviewed multiple sets of data (laughs) (laughs) and then I made a gut decision on what I felt after seeing the picture as a whole. So, you know, it's easy if you go to one end of the spectrum, extreme scientists like data, 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 it's, you know, really easy in hard sciences, gets a little more murky in business, but how do you handle that? Like how much data should I be reviewing or how do you answer these big questions? Wow. So that's a really easy question you dropped in front of me, Joel. Thanks for that. Uh, 
So I, I, I have a couple thoughts here and I love this question though. Um, and, and here's one thing I would say, you know, there's a story that I love. It was a, a letter that the president of the American Statistical Association, he was stepping down from, you know, this job and he wrote this final letter and, um, cause I'm a huge nerd. I read the letters of the American Statistical Association, right? And he started this letter saying, um, if you're standing on a beach, you know, and you, Notice the waves are going out really far, really fast. Um, you do not need to do a 10,000 person survey to figure out that you should run, right? All you need is an N of one <laughs> in that situation. That is the evidence that you need, that you need to get out there. And so I think sometimes, you know, it's not really about data. It's about, do we have evidence that's fit for purpose? And sometimes the evidence that's fit for the decision we need to make is a huge survey. And sometimes it is the art form and the best decision we can make in that moment because we need to do it fast or we, you know, we know that, yes, we have quant data, but it doesn't measure something super important. You know, we're still working towards figuring out how to measure that thing. All of that stuff we bring together, I think, in our decision making. And rather than being afraid of that, you know, I try to lean into it and say, where can it all inform, you know, the other parts of it? So, in our lab, we do qualitative research and we do quantitative research. That was one of the things that I was very excited to do with this team because I think that human experience, we can measure it in like a one to five scale, at, you know, at scale with a thousand people. And we can also have a long, in-depth interview with somebody and that can teach us something super profound. So that's kind of my version of gut instinct, I guess, is the qual research. 